0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am joined today by Kevin F. Adler, who's the author with Don Burns, along with Amanda Bonn and Adriana Bilbia of When We Walk By, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, and the Role We Each Can Play in Ending Homelessness in America, new out from North Atlantic Books. Kevin, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, So before we home in specifically on the book, I wonder if you might tell folks a little bit about about who you are and what you do and what brought you to this project.
1: Sure. Uh, So yeah, nice to connect with uh, all the listeners. Um, So I am uh, a social entrepreneur. I've started a few ventures in the nonprofit space, uh, education initially, and uh, in the last 10 years, been working around homelessness. I got into this work because my uncle uh, was homeless for about 30 years, Uh, but, you know, never thought of him as a homeless man per se. It was really just a beloved member of my family. And it was after he passed away on the streets at the age of 50 that I started thinking, gosh, everyone I'm walking by, you know, that's someone's son or daughter, brother or sister, maybe some kid's beloved uncle. Uh, So that was really the starting point for me on this journey. I, I live in the Bay Area. Uh, and um, have a background as a sociologist, which really informs some of the theories that we use at Miracle Messages around relational poverty and the importance of social capital.
0: So perfect. So I I want to talk about Miracle Messages and this notion of relational poverty. But before we do, I wonder if it might be useful to just lay a little bit of groundwork for folks. What do we know about the scale and scope of the problem, right? How many people in the U.S. likely experience homelessness? And what do we know about who they are?
1: Yeah, great, great starting point. Uh, So every night in the United States, uh, nearly 600,000 people uh, of all backgrounds are experiencing homelessness. Uh, That's on any given night, according to the PIT counts. Um, The actual number, 582,000, something in there, but about 600,000. And in this book, and through our research, we estimate that the Number of people who experience homelessness at some point over the year, uh, though maybe they self resolve um, or double up, triple up with friends and it becomes invisible to, you know, pit count uh, canvassers.
0: And that's the point in time count that gets done once a year, right? To count people who are in shelters or on the street.
1: That's right. I'll try to avoid as much jargon as I can. <laughs> I, I'm usually not one to immerse myself in the alphabet soup of it all. But uh, yeah, so from the point in time count, around 600,000 are on the streets every night. But we estimate that it's as much as 10 times that amount uh, who experience homelessness over the course of the year. Uh, you know, uh, parents uh, with children, it's one of the largest groups, young people uh, who experience homelessness is a major demographic Uh, seniors, elderly, the population of people experiencing homelessness continues to age. Uh, But it's uh, that, you know, we also have a very, you know, clear uh, uh, vision of what homelessness is, which is often a very unsheltered street homelessness, which does account for a large percentage in California. It's, it's, uh, you know, about half of the country's unsheltered population lives in California. Uh, But uh, it's not, nearly the the entirety let alone the majority of people who do experience homelessness Mo- most of the folks who do experience homelessness um look you know invisible in, in terms of whether we perceive them as homeless
0: and what do we know about why it is that people become homeless what's what what are the range of of causes there that that folks should know about
1: Yeah, it tends to be not just one factor, but many, and a cascading uh, series of unfortunate uh, events. Uh, You usually, about one out of every three people in the Bay Area at least, uh, attribute some form of relational brokenness as a cause of homelessness. So that could be a death of a loved one, uh, uh, getting kicked out of a household, um, a fight, an argument, a divorce, a separation, uh, so some kind of falling out uh, or, or relational brokenness. Another third uh, can be attributed to some kind of job loss or economic instability, um, uh, you know, health issues that require someone to, you know, step away from their work. Um, and, and then there's usually a whole number of factors that have to go wrong uh, from, relationships that aren't supportive or aren't there, um, you know, not having a job that provides flexibility in terms of time off, um, you know, getting evicted and, and not having a recourse. And the one thing I just mentioned as we start talking about these high-level stats is, you know, there's a question that I think guides a lot of this um, this conversation around homelessness, which is, you know, why are so many people experiencing homelessness? That's a really important question. And I think there's a lot of factors and considerations to, to put put in mind. But an equally important question that really doesn't get asked is, you know, with one out of every two Americans a paycheck away from not being able to pay rent, and forty-seven percent of people self-reporting, not knowing where they get four hundred dollars for an unexpected emergency, you almost have to wonder why aren't tens of millions of people experiencing homelessness? Why aren't there more people experiencing homelessness? And that's where we see a role of, you know, family, friends, community, church, synagogue, mosque, informal economy, um, you know, really making up the difference for many people from falling over the edge into homelessness.
0: So you you made a reference earlier to this notion of relational poverty and the ways in which sort of lack of good networks and support systems can increase the likelihood that that a crisis or an event in your life will cause you to become homeless. Can you talk first of all talk a little bit about about what you mean when you talk about relational poverty and what that means to someone who is unsheltered how does how does that play into their sort of day-to-day life and their ability to uh, become sheltered again
1: yeah it's a great question well the way i think of relational poverty in pretty simple terms is a type of severe isolation and loneliness that often is accompanied by a level of stigma and uh, even shame that is almost impossible to try to imagine if you haven't gone through it uh you know disconnection uh, and isolation and loneliness for our neighbors experiencing homelessness can be uh inc- it's a form of poverty that gets overlooked and it can be deadly uh, you know there's lots of research that we're starting to see around the importance of uh combating loneliness uh, where loneliness can be considered a public health issue and if you're a person experiencing homelessness the likelihood of having a, a strong nurturing support network uh, that you can rely on for uh, helping to navigate complex systems, or uh, troubleshooting or problem solving, um, it, you know, in the in the event that you need help, um, being able to have a little bit of extra money or a place to spend the night, or uh, you know, just someone to su- provide emotional support to. Many of our neighbors experiencing homelessness either don't have that. Or they've lost it, or it really wasn't resource-rich to begin with. In part because of the percentages that I mentioned around how many people in the country are barely getting by, Um, and so we don't, you know, I don't think of relational poverty as any kind of silver bullet for ending homelessness. Uh, You know, housing uh, is front and center, criminal justice, uh, racial justice, uh, health disparities, but you are relationally, relationally impoverished, uh, the likelihood that you'll get into housing and then keep that housing, if you do get into housing, in the event of a health issue, job loss, emergency that's unforeseeable, is pretty unlikely. Um, and we see in San Francisco, where I've uh, spent most of the last decade, uh, 60% of successful shelter exits, 60% of people who leave the shelter system and verifiably go into housing rather than the streets or unknown and lose touch, 60% is as a result of family and friend reunification. So it's this incredibly powerful tool in the toolkit, relational poverty, relational support, addressing relational poverty, but it just doesn't really get talked about or centered in a lot of the services that we provide. Yeah.
0: Um, that feels like a good moment for for you to maybe say a little bit about the work that you all do at Miracle Message and, and how that plays in.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So Miracle Messages, uh, as I mentioned, started it in honor of my uncle. On the, the best thing I did on this journey when I got started on it 10 years ago was starting from a vantage point of I don't know a thing about homelessness. <laughs> you know, I had an uncle who was a beloved member of my family but I didn't have any pretense that uh, I knew more than the next person on this issue. Um, and my journey on this issue and the work we do at Miracle Messages, I think the best decision we've made is every single program we've developed has been really through conversation, listening, deep interactions with neighbors experiencing homelessness. So uh, to talk through the programs and, and really some of the kind of key insights that emerged to each one very briefly. So The first year, uh, 2013, 2014, that I was working on this issue, I basically spent a year just getting to know my unhoused neighbors as neighbors and uh, listen to their stories. And the device I used uh, to try to help capture those stories was inviting um, 24 individuals who are unhoused to wear uh, GoPro cameras around their chests and basically narrate their experience of what life is like on the streets. And I got that footage back. And in uh, one of the first clips, I heard someone say, you know, I never realized I was homeless when I lost my housing, only when I lost my family and friends. Mm. So that was kind of the key first insight And said, well, gosh, maybe we could talk to folks who are experiencing homelessness and ask uh, if there's an interest to reconnect to a loved one and and maybe some percentage will say yes. And so that led to our first program, uh, which is our Miracle Messages, family reunification services, uh, where we help folks who are experiencing homelessness record messages, could be video, audio, text, online forms, uh, calls through our hotline, which is uh, 1-800-MISS-YOU, so really accessible phone number. Um, Caseworkers, social workers refer people to us as well. And uh, then we have a network of volunteer digital detectives, that make phone calls and write letters and do digital searches to locate the loved ones, deliver the messages, help people reunite. Uh, Those efforts, along with working in the reverse order where families reach out to us and say, hey, my brother uh, is missing somewhere in Los Angeles. I haven't seen him in 10 years, can you find them? Uh, Those efforts have led to over 800 uh, family and friend reunifications uh, since we got started in December 2014. So that's the first program. Second program is we realized uh, pretty quickly that if our theory of change is that relational poverty is poverty, and for many people uh, experiencing homelessness, family is part of the problem, not part of the solution, or at least not a viable uh, resource, raised a question. How do you address relational poverty in that circumstance? And uh, in the first month of the pandemic, we were given an opportunity work with the City and County of San Francisco's uh, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to launch uh, what has become our Miracle Friends Phone Buddy program. And that is a program that has volunteers around the world uh, who have committed 30 minutes a week for phone calls and text messages with unhoused neighbors uh, as a kind of big brothers, big sisters for the homeless. But really meant to be on equal footing as, as friends, as neighbors. Mm-hmm. And that program, uh, again, through listening to the feedback that we heard from volunteers and our own house neighbors, though it was, uh, you know, embraced and, and something that was clearly something of value to the folks who are participating, we also started to hear, gosh, you know, this is, you've asked me to be friends with this person, and, and, and I trust them, I love them, we have a relationship now, but it's very hard for me to feel like we're on equal footing and to be friends when they don't know where they're going to get their next meal yeah. or they don't they lack money for yeah. you know putting gas in their car to get to work on Monday. And that's what led us to launch uh, what turned out to be uh, the first basic income pilot for individuals experiencing homelessness in the United States, uh, where we initially raised $50,000, distributed $500 a month for six months. To 14 individuals, 10 of whom were experiencing homelessness. And uh, within the six-month period of the pilot, uh, two-thirds of the individuals were able to use the funds to secure housing. And uh, that pilot has now grown to a $2.1 million uh, randomized control trial. We're working with researchers at USC, funding from Google.org, uh, to really look at the power of direct cash transfers uh, in the form of basic income combined with the social support of a phone buddy Uh, and that's our third program which is our miracle money program and and those three programs along with really creating avenues for everyday people uh, to get involved in this issue um, and embrace unhoused neighbors as people to be loved not problems to be solved that's really the core of what we do at miracle messages
0: And that to state what I think is probably obvious to a lot of people listening in, that is an approach that is very different from the typical ways in which people think about homeless people, and and as you said, they think of them as problems, as a problem to be solved. You talk in the book about uh, uh, progressive paternalism that we find often in the service agencies that purportedly are, are out uh, offering assistance to folks, and the more uh, arguably American style of punitive paternalism. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which you see those functioning in the ways that people think about and try to provide services to people who are homeless?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's this book, if, uh, if there was, we had a lot of goals with it, but one goal that we had was to really not have, um, an enemy that we looked at as the type of scapegoat for why all the problems are existing around homelessness. And the reason for that, uh, Stephen, is really because I think it's more important to hold up a mirror and to look into it and see all of our role in this human rights crisis of our time. Uh, so when it relates to paternalism, uh, I know I've been you know, guilty as charged uh, to think of people experiencing homelessness, perhaps as not being able to make the best decisions for themselves and their families. Um, You know, I relay in the book a story of uh, my friend, Ronnie, who rejected uh, housing that was offered to him. And when I first heard that, Ronnie, you're experiencing homelessness, you're unsheltered, you have housing available to you. Why on earth would you reject that? And he very patiently responded to me, well, it's in a neighborhood and in a housing complex where drugs are going to be present 24-7. And I know with my addiction history, if I get back into that building, I'm going to relapse and not make it. And so I'm holding out for senior housing. And that to me was an example where I too was, you know, exhibiting a kind of, you know, what I would call progressive paternalism, where uh, I felt this desire to save Ronnie, to help him uh, and a presumption, almost a self-righteousness that perhaps I know better than he does what's needed. And what I found through this work Is the closer we get to our neighbors experiencing homelessness, the more we listen to the stories, situations, circumstances in which they're in, the more likely we're going to realize, gosh, if I were in a similar situation, I'd probably be making very similar decisions as they are.
0: They are often very much rational actors. Incredibly rational. Yeah. Uh,
1: Incredibly rational. And so... It's really a question not of, and again, this, this broader notion in homelessness that I think is, uh, pervades a lot of the discourse that we're trying to get past, that there's some level of deservedness to people experiencing homelessness, that uh, there's an individual culpability or responsibility. And, and this is broader than the homelessness conversation. This gets into you know American notions of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and individual success and self-made man and woman. Um, And and what we've, you know, what we've tried to really highlight in the book is that, uh, you know, but for the grace of God go I for any of us. um, And the closer we get to our in-house neighbors, the more we realize that they are almost to a person doing the best they can in very challenging circumstances.
0: So if we can, why don't we turn our – so the the book, for, for folks who haven't had a chance to look at it yet, the book is broken down into three sections. The first is what we have been talking about, uh, uh, the problem of of humanity, the ways in which we think of our neighbors who are homeless. The second section is systems, which I want to turn to next, and the third one is solutions, which I want to get to. But so, so moving beyond sort of the ways in which we think about – Certain categories of people. Um, turning to maybe what's what's more traditional as when policy folks think about about homelessness. Going back to this conversation of why people become homeless. What are the things that we should be looking at to understand the systems that create the opportunity for people to be unhoused? To, to frame it in that awkward way.
1: Well, I think uh, as as the outline of the book kind of lays out chapter by chapter, we, we tried to distill from the major factors that cause homelessness, perpetuate homelessness into, you know, each chapter as a system. And so we have a chapter on housing, uh, which covers everything from, uh, you know, zoning that forbids uh, multifamily units or mixed use, uh, you know, complexes to the astronomical cost of construction, to the lack of Prevention and money that's invested in really keeping people from falling over into homelessness, which is a much uh, more cost effective enterprise uh, to these notions of deservedness. Again, I, I mean, I think there is a separation between the systems and the humanity elements, but they're also an interconnection uh, that uh, we you know, don't believe that people have a right to be housed. Um, and that—that that is a decision we make as a nation that I think we have to look squarely at and acknowledge. Uh, so there's the housing bit. I think uh, health, uh, both mental, behavioral health, as well as uh, physical health. Uh, you know, folks who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, someone like uh, Elizabeth, who's featured in the book in a few spots. Here's someone who has been an educator in uh, the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. Uh, For many years, you know, in her early 50s, never experienced homelessness a day in her life, and then gets this horrible diagnosis that is any of our worst nightmares, uh, where the doctor says, you know, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, you have, and it's the C word, you know, she has colon cancer. And that uh, the the treatment and then going through chemo makes it so she can no longer work at uh, public schools and and in a classroom environment since her immune system is so compromised. That means she can no longer afford uh, the apartment that she's been in for the past 14 years. And for the first time in her adult adult life, in her entire life, she finds herself in in a shelter. Um, while going through chemotherapy. So we highlight, you know, the health, the elements of health, health disparities uh, of of what causes homelessness. Also, I think work wages and wealth. Uh, There's, uh, you know, a a very powerful mother and son, uh, uh, Lainey and Gabe, who are featured in the income inequality chapter. Uh, And these two individuals I've known for about a decade, both of them have worked almost the entire time I've known them. um, Working either minimum wage or even below minimum wage jobs, and still not able to, uh, you know, pull enough money together to pay rent, to afford a down payment, to pass the background check. Uh, and there's, you know, it's this visceral image I'll never forget of even Gabe while in high school, uh, you know, working at McDonald's, cleaning himself up in the bathroom after his shift, and then walking to his car at the far end of the parking lot, where he's then going to sleep for the night, and this was his existence. Uh, so covers that, covers the criminal justice uh, system and the real revolving door between homelessness and incarceration, where many cities make it illegal to be homeless, uh, anti, uh, you know, camping, sleeping, loitering, feeding, even. Um, and and really, I, I think in there and and many of the chapters, we tried to highlight the racial justice. Uh, elements to it since those two issues are interchangeable uh, um, you know in this country and then we highlight the youth and education aspects as well Uh, so you know the foster care system right now if you age out of foster care within uh, by the time I think you're 24 a third of young people experience homelessness so uh, those are really the kind of key systems that we highlight but you know there could be many more that uh, we could have talked about as well
0: yeah it's just it's I mean, I feel like it's worth underlining the fact that that when people say, you know, why is why are there so many people experiencing homelessness as opposed to other rich democracies? Part of the answer is that they have a much more elaborate system of supports so that if you become sick, you still have access to health care and you don't necessarily lose your income. That, you know, on and on and on. That's sort of familiar to folks, but but I think I think we sometimes lose track of that, as you said, because of this this literally centuries old notion of, of, well, if there's something wrong, it's your own fault, right? It's the land of opportunity. So surely, right? And of course, the reality is that's just not true. That's just not the case. We don't have available, accessible, affordable housing. We don't have good, well-paying jobs. We don't have supports for people with physical illness or mental illness or disability. And any one of those things can push you toward an experience of homelessness. But of course, as you pointed out earlier, one of those things can get you set into a feedback effect, right? So you, you know, you have a, a physical illness, you lose your job, you lose your housing, it exacerbates your illness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Ah, it's all well, very frustrating. Well said. I think you need it's to join all all us on our <laughs> um, So, Kevin, what do we do about it?
1: Well, uh, I I think that is the question. Uh, For me, it begins really with getting to know a neighbor experiencing homelessness because I could list off a bunch of policy solutions and, you know, we could talk about all the work that needs to be done on the systems level. We can talk about all the ways we can, you know, be better humans to our neighbors experiencing homelessness. Um, As I said in the book at the closing, if you don't know someone who's currently experiencing homelessness by name, uh, as a neighbor, as a friend, as a family member, uh, I would invite you to go and get to know a neighbor who's on house. Uh, and the reason I think that's such an important starting point is, because I actually believe that there is a tremendous amount of pent up, uh, not even pent up, but expressed anger, frustration, uh, you know, just almost verging on uh, volatility around this issue. Uh, people are tired and tired of so much money and time and energy being spent with so little to show for it. And I actually think our uh, you know systems around homelessness, the elected officials that we have, even the homeless service providers that you know we we rely on, have not done a great job looking to everyday people and saying you need to be part of the solution. Uh, it, it's really the mantra is you know trust us, we know what we're doing. So what I would put forward is everyone needs to get involved in this issue. Everyone needs to know. You know, I take a page from the foster care system, where uh, a best practice in the foster care space is that every child who does well in the foster care system, compared to someone who really, you know, does not do well and and falls through and, and you know may have horrible outcomes, you know, later on, they have someone who goes to bed at night, wakes up in the morning thinking of their well-being who isn't a government caseworker, who isn't paid to do so. Um, and I don't know at what point any of us as human beings age out of the need to feel loved and to feel seen and to feel supported. Uh, so at Miracle Messages, you know, we offer ways to get involved and connect with neighbors experiencing homelessness and our phone buddy program. Do uh, outreach. Uh, we do the reunion services, but we're just a small, you know, fish in a major pond. There's tremendous work being done across the nation, homeless service organizations. Um, but I think it, what I would also do to beyond just the relational aspect, I think the conversation around homelessness is also one that, that needs to be reexamined. Uh, because there's these notions in news media and a lot of the social media posts that we probably see that people experiencing homelessness, why don't they just get a job or, you know, we can't if this is an expensive city, uh, you know, we, we not everyone can live here. Well, you know, in the Bay Area, 70 percent of the people who are experiencing homelessness in the Bay Area uh, were once housed in the Bay Area. Uh, and 90% before it became of people, the
0: expensive city it is today, before it became the city that is a
1: you know, and ninety percent of people who are homeless in California were once housed in California. So I would just say that um, you know, if you're taking nothing else away, being the relational piece I think is key, and then taking a moment to look at and, and you know, hopefully read this book, and then think about the the next time you read an article around. Homelessness. The next time you see a news report or you see a friend post time on social media, what assumptions are being, you know, kind of implicitly assumed in in that post that maybe need to be pointed out or questioned or highlighted? Um, and uh, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of good advocacy and fighting to do on the policy front. I know this is kind of a policy program. Uh, I think the uh, push uh, to basically make it so folks who are experiencing homelessness are required to go into shelters, and assuming that, uh, hey, you know, we can do sweeps and we can, you know, raise encampments and kick people out of the areas they're in and put them in shelters. To me, that shows a lack of familiarity about how bad most of the shelters are, uh, at least in the Bay Area. Uh, so I think getting up close and personal, doing what Brian Stevenson called getting proximate. Uh, to the people that we want to serve, and in fact, being relational uh, to go even a step further is, I think, a a key starting point.
0: You're listening to Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Kevin F. Adler, who is the co-author with Don W. Burns, along with Amanda Bond and Adriana Belibia. Oh, excuse me, I keep messing up poor Adriana's (laughs) name, Bill of When We Walk By. Forgotten humanity, broken systems, and the role we each can play in ending homelessness in America from North Atlantic Books. Kevin, thank you so very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.